I don't want to trip. All right. Good morning, everyone. That's a great worship. Thank you, uh, worship band. That was amazing. Super appreciate that and all this work that you guys do. And isn't it great to see Anthony up on stage again? It's nice to have Anthony back. <clears throat> Welcome to See Me Church. I'm Joe Collins. Our mission is to love both God and people. And uh, we're in a series called Jesus Worth Following. And, you know, we've been doing the series for quite some time now. And we're almost at the end. We're, we're literally getting to the end. And I'm not going to know what to do with myself after uh, this series ends. But it is exciting as we bring it to a close here. I think we got one, maybe two more uh, messages and then we're done. But the last time uh, I got to be up here to speak to you, last week we were out at the park and uh, really appreciate Glenn Neergarter's message, The More Beautiful Way. It has been st stuck in my mind ever since, Glenn, and thank you for that. It was really a, a tremendous lesson that Sunday. Uh, but the last time I spoke uh, on the, on the, in this series, we talked about uh, responsibility and the whole idea that God doesn't let us off the hook. He, he forces us to take responsibility. Well, today, I want to talk about consequences and the need to own the consequences, that we, we have to take ownership over the consequences of our decisions. So there was this older woman, an old lady, and she went to the doctor and she was having a problem. She sat down with the doctor and she said, doctor, I'm a little embarrassed, but I've been having really, really frequent gas. I can't stop. Joe just giggled. I can't, I can't stop. I don't know what's happening. I mean, the good news is, is that there's no odor and there's no noise, but it's nonstop. As a matter of fact, in the, the two minutes we've been talking, I've probably had gas 10 times just sitting here. What do I do? And the doctor said, well, that is, that is concerning. Let's, uh, let's see if we can help. Uh, so he wrote her a prescription. He said, I want you to take this prescription, take it for a week and come back. And she said, okay. So she left, took her medicine. She came back a week later and she sat down in the room and she said to the, the doctor said, well, how's it going? And she said, oh, doctor, I don't know what you gave me, but the gas is not stopped. It's still going on and on and on. Fortunately, it's silent, but now it smells to high heaven. I can't even be in a room with anyone. I have, to, I have to leave when I'm in the room alone sometimes. It's terrible. What did you give me? And he said, you know, that's really good. That's really good. Now that we fixed your sinuses, let's work on your hearing. <laughs> you know, there are consequences to our sin. And sometimes we want to act like they're not there. We want to deny that they exist, but they actually do exist. And we need to get in touch with those consequences. Let's pray. God, thank you so very much for this morning and for bringing us together. I pray for your Holy Spirit is with us. Speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! 
Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. So if you're new or if you don't remember, we're in the, we're in the last day of Jesus's life. This is Friday, the final day of his life on earth. This whole series of events began the night before, Thursday night. It was Passover. Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem. He was in what we call the upper room. That was, we don't know where, but some people estimate right about there. <clears throat> he was there on a Thursday night to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And the reason why they were in the city was because that was according to custom. You had to celebrate Passover in the city. Jesus normally, when he visited Jerusalem, stayed in Bethany, a town just under two miles away. And he would come in for the day into the city of Jerusalem. But now they needed to rent a room, an upper room in the city, like all the other pilgrims who were in the city at the time celebrating Passover were doing. They were in homes, they were in rented rooms. There were literally hundreds of thousands of people in the city, and they were all celebrating the Passover meal this night, Thursday night. After Passover was over, Jesus took his disciples, they walked through the city, through the temple, and out to the Garden of Gethsemane, right about there. <clears throat> There they spent some time in prayer. We don't know how long, but it must have been fairly late because sometime in the late night, uh, maybe even early Friday morning, a crowd of, of uh, soldiers from the, from the uh, temple guard came and arrested Jesus. Now they arrested him there at that time because that was when they knew he would not be in the public eye. Jesus was very popular and these hundreds and thousands of pilgrims that were in the city of Jerusalem loved him. And the, the, the Sanhedrin the Jewish ruling body, the, the, the government of the, of the Jewish religious system, so to speak, of the, of the religious nation of Israel, the leaders called the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus dead. But they couldn't arrest him because there were too many people there who loved him. So they had to find a time when he would be alone. And Judas, the traitor, told them when he would be alone in the garden, late Thursday night, early Friday morning. And so they show up there and sure enough, he's there. They arrest him. They take him over to the palace of the house of Caiaphas, somewhere around there. <clears throat> and there, they're already assembled, the whole Sanhedrin. Maybe not all the Sanhedrin, but most of them were there, enough to have a, a, a trial. And they had already decided the outcome. They wanted Jesus dead. They needed to find some uh, uh, a capital crime that he committed. In this case, it was blasphemy. So they put him on trial. They have all these false witnesses, and they convict him of blasphemy, and they sentence him to death. They beat him up, and they leave him in a room for the night. Very early the next morning, they decide that they should take him to Pilate, the Roman governor. And the reason for this was twofold. One, technically, under Roman law, they couldn't execute Jesus. They needed permission, so they'd have to go to Pilate. But really, the Jews sometimes just did whatever they wanted to do. They didn't always follow Roman law. Really, what they wanted to do on another level was they wanted Rome to be blamed for Jesus' death because they didn't want these thousands of pilgrims turning on them. So early in the morning, they take Jesus over to Pilate. He's probably staying right here in Herod's palace. That was where Pilate would stay when he would visit Jerusalem. It was the nicest place in the city at the time. Pilate was there because it was Passover. And Pilate being the governor of the, of the province of Judea, it was his job to provide security. So he was there with a whole uh, uh, regiment of uh, Roman soldiers, and, and some more were probably stationed over here in the Tower of Antonio, uh, Antonia. And there, 
They take Jesus, and now they've got to figure out a reason for Pilate to want Jesus to be dead. Pilate could care less about blasphemy, so they accuse Jesus of all kinds of things, including treason. After some delay, Pilate finally gives in, says, okay, fine, he's, he's, a, tra- he's a traitor, and he sentences him to death, and he orders Jesus to be whipped. Probably took place in the, the courtyard of Herod's palace. They stripped him, they tied him to a post, and they whipped him mercilessly with a, with a whip made of wood, leather strips, with rock, bone, glass, metal, whatever, tied into the strips. And the whole purpose of this whipping was to peel the skin off of his back. It was brutal. It was horrific. It was severe. You know, we talked about the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people, how during the trial they tried so hard to make Rome responsible for this. They tried so hard to pin the responsibility on someone else, but God wouldn't let them. And so eventually, Pilate forced their hand, and they had to come out and publicly say, crucify him. It's interesting because everybody involved in the death of Jesus at some point tried not to be responsible, but God didn't let any of them off the hook. And he lets none of us off the hook as we learned before. And why does God not let us off the hook? Because God is a father and he loves his son. And whenever people mistreat or disrespect or dishonor his son, there is a consequence. And so Jesus is whipped. The irony is that he's being whipped for their sin. They're the ones who falsely accused him. They're the ones who want him dead. He's committed no crime legally or even according to the law, the the, the religious law of the land. Yet because they didn't like him, they didn't like what he had to say, they wanted him dead, they fabricated charges, and they got the conviction. And instantly, as soon as the decision was made and the sentence was announced, the consequences were immediate. And the consequences were severe. We should be very sobered by this because even the smallest sin results in severe consequences. You know, there's lots of ways to read the Bible. And if you have been around and see me church much, you know that I love what's called exegetical reading. Exegetical reading is when you take a passage of Scripture a text, a book, a section, a chapter, whatever, and you dig into it, you research it, you learn about it, and you learn about the the content, the context. Why was it written? To whom was it written? What was the reason? And if those, if you were there at the time, what would you understand from this passage? And we understand, you know, and, and, and we dig deep to want to know what did this mean at the time that it was written to the people that it was written to? And then from there, once we understand it, we have a good grasp on what is the intent of this this section and why and who and what did it mean to them. Then and only then can we actually properly apply it to our lives because we can now take what it meant there and we can apply it to our lives. And I love exegetical reading of the Bible. I love exegetical teaching. I want to know all the ins and outs. I want to understand what, what was going on and why. And all. I love all those answers to all those questions, but that's not the only way to read the Bible. 
Some people read the Bible casually, and there's nothing wrong with casual Bible reading. Sometimes you just need to read the Bible to know the Bible. Sometimes you just read the story and let the story just speak to you. Sometimes we, we read the Bible in what we call in a devotional way, where we read it and we meditate on it and we just let it say something to our hearts. We don't get too much into the context or the background. We just listen to the words and we let the words themselves minister or speak to us. There's another way in which you can read the Bible. It's called topical reading. There's nothing wrong with any of these ways to read the Bible. In fact, all of them are good and all of them are advised. But when you read the Bible topically, the idea there is that you bounce around throughout the entire book and you follow different themes or different ideas. You see, we believe that the Bible is one continuous story with one, one author, even though it was written by many different men and even women contributed over many different years, and many of these people didn't know each other, they didn't even live at the same times or in the same locations, there's still a common message. There's still a general narrative that's going on there, and it's cohesive. And so when you read the Bible like that, kind of like an encyclopedia, you can take a subject, and you can study out a subject and bounce through all these different letters and different narratives and actually learn something about that subject. I did this once a while back on anger. I, I read every verse in the Bible that said anger, angry, anything to do with anger. I wrote them all down. And then I read them all and got a really good perspective on what God thinks about man's anger. That's not the point today. Maybe that's another sermon. I'll share that another time, but it was enlightening. What I'd like to do now is a little bit of a topical study of the Bible. And I would like to study a specific word, and that word is sin. I'm not going to go to every verse in the Bible that has the word sin. But we're going to look at, a, at an overview of text. And, and the reason why is because we really need to get in touch with the seriousness of sin and its consequences. We really need to be sobered. If we were there at the, at, the, at the beginning of the crucifixion, if we were in Herod's palace and we saw the sentence and we saw the, the Sanhedrin say, crucify him because they rejected him and they didn't want anything to do with him, not because he had done anything wrong. And then Pilate tried to wiggle his way out, but he couldn't. And eventually the order was given, fine, crucify him. And then they take him out and whip him. You would immediately go, whoa, this is serious business. Sin is serious business and we need to be remembered of it from time to time. So let's look at a few passages in the Bible. Romans 6, 23. This was written by a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was formerly called Saul. He was a Pharisee. He was actually an op a man who opposed the message and ministry of Jesus Christ. He actually uh, didn't oppose Jesus directly. He came in, into prominence a, a few years after Jesus was crucified. But then he had a conversion. And he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. We call it Romans. And it's this deep study, this deep dive into what faith is all about. And in that study, one of the points he makes is that the wages of sin is death. Fascinating use of words. Wages. Wages are something you earn. There's something you're entitled to. If you work eight hours and your employer doesn't pay you, you can go and sue your employer and he can be forced to pay you. Paul tells us that sin is something we've earned or the consequences of sin, it's something we've earned. 
And, and I don't know of anything else in all of God's economy, in all of creation, that you could go before God and demand an answer. You could demand your justice. You could say, I need my wages. I've earned them. And you will get them. And the only thing we've actually ever earned is sin. And the wage of that sin is death. Isaiah 59. Isaiah was a prophet, lived long before Jesus, back in the Old Testament days. He said this, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Isaiah seems to get a little bit deeper into the idea of what sin is really all about. We think of death, we think of physical death. And certainly that's what Paul had in mind when he talked about the wages of sin is death. But he also had Isaiah's idea, this idea of being separated from God. There's actually something worse than physical death. It's separation from God. That's by far more fearsome, more horrible, more horrific, more terrifying. To be separated from God is the ultimate, we call it the spiritual death. Sometimes the second death. Isaiah tells us that our iniquities, a fancy word for sin, they separate us from God. It's even hard for God to hear us. Habakkuk, another prophet from the old days, he said, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Habakkuk gives us a little insight into what is the big deal with sin? Well, the big deal is this. God is so pure that he cannot look upon impurity. He's so righteous. He is so pure. He is so true. He is so holy. He has so much integrity that he can't even coexist with anything less than that. And so when we sin, we drive God from us. We drive him away from us so far sometimes that he can't even hear us and it ends in death, physical and spiritual. Numbers, now we're going back to the days of the beginning of the nation of Israel. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. There's no one that's going to hide. There's no one that's going to get off the hook. There's no one that's going to slip through a crack. Our sin cannot be hidden. It always exposes us. It always finds us. Hebrews chapter 4. We're back into the New, Christ, New Testament days, into the Christian era. After Jesus died and resurrected and his message spread and a church began to grow all over the Roman Empire and, and a, a, a person wrote, we don't actually know the author, but he wrote to former Jews who now believed in Jesus. That's why it's called Hebrews. He said, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every thought, every word, every deed, whether it's been done in public or in secret, God sees it. It will not be missed. In fact, there will come a day where it will be exposed. It will be brought into the light. And worse yet, more terrifying than that, is you will be called to account, to explain yourself. I don't have a great analogy for the, the magnitude of this one. I can think of being a little kid, though, and getting in trouble and getting caught. And you get that pit in your stomach and that fear that you feel will magnify that infin infinitely. 
Imagine that before God who sees everything we've ever said, done, or thought and calls us into an account for it. Again, in the, in the Christian era, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Paul is simply telling us that there is, a, there is an outcome that is inevitable. And whatever road you're on, you're going to end up with that outcome. You're going to reap what you sow. Now, what's interesting here is there's a little bit of a bright side. The bright side is, is that, hey, you don't always have to sow evil things. You can sow spiritual things. You can sow good things and you can reap good things from that. But be careful. That doesn't mean the sin does not need to be dealt with. That doesn't mean that there is still sin that's going to be, you're going to be held into account for. Some religions have based their entire theology on the belief that if I'm just a little better than I am bad... I'm okay. But that's not what God, how it works with God. Your sin, irrespective of your good deeds, still needs to be held into account. You will still be judged and called to account for them. Finally, Ephesians. Paul, again, writing to the church in Ephesus. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They're full of greed. What's alarming here and what I see Paul telling us is two things. One, sin hardens our hearts. It makes us dull. It desensitizes us. Who here cannot testify to that truth? That you sin once and it's suddenly easier to sin again. And then it's easier to sin again. And the next thing you know, you're sinning in ways that you never imagined could be possible. You're compromising. You find yourself in places that you never would have imagined. So sin hardens our hearts. It desensitizes us. But something else that happens is that sin leads to more sin. It's, a, it's an endless spiral. And it's easy. Once you've started down the road, it's so easy to just keep going down the road and keep going down the road. You know, the Pharisees or the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they didn't start out three years ago wanting to kill Jesus. As a matter of fact, when he first came on the scene and he first began to speak, they were somewhat interested in him. They would come and interview him. They would send representatives. They wanted to know about him. They wanted to know what's his take on this and what's his take on that. There was a lot of, there was a lot of interest in him and what he had to say and what he was doing. But somewhere along the way, there, along the way, they began to reject it. They began to not like what he was saying and not like what he was doing. And they began to refuse it. And, and, and that, that, just that, just starting there in three years time, little by little, they got to the point to where they were like, I don't care what we got to do. I don't care what things, we, what laws we got to violate. I don't care what conscience we got to sear. We got to get this guy dead. Little by little. And so, the point. Sin always ends with Jesus being whipped, mocked, and crucified. It always ends there. If it didn't end there, it would be you and me being whipped, mocked, and crucified because the sin is not his, the sin is ours. But in the irony of all ironies, 
Jesus, the innocent one, is reaping what we sow. He's reaping what they sowed. And he's doing it willingly. He's doing it for our benefit, on our behalf. He's taking what we deserve, the consequence to our sin, as severe and violent and grotesque as it is, Jesus was willing to accept the punishment that they deserve and that we deserve. Sin always ends with Jesus being whipped, mocked, and crucified. It is sobering to think about the consequences of sin. If you're visiting for the first time, let me just say, we don't, we don't have this conversation every time. <laughs> but we need to have this conversation from time to time. Because even Christians aren't immune to the consequences of sin. So a while back, we read <clears throat> a few weeks back a passage of Scripture, and, and I said to you that sometimes when you read the Bible, there's really nothing else to say. It says enough. And anything I try to add will only take away from it. And we're at another point in the Bible like that, where it's time to just let the Bible speak and let us listen. I have no commentary. I just want you to hear what happens as a result of your and my sin. Like we did last time, I'm going to ask us to stand because it's tradition to stand at the reading of Scripture. So if you wouldn't mind, stand. I'm going to read the next section, and I just want you to listen and allow it to speak to your heart. I can't think of a better picture of the consequences of sin than what Mark tells us in these next few passages. Afterwards, I'm going to pray, and then we'll sit down and we'll continue with our lesson. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing, on his way, passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see which would get which would each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Father, we are humbled by Jesus. 
by his willingness to endure a scourging, a whipping, mocking, and crucifixion. None of which he deserved, none of which he earned, none of which was at his own hand, but it was because of the envy, of the hatred, of the evil of others, including ourselves, that Jesus found himself being crucified. God, I pray that even the oldest Christian in the room who's, who's heard this story countless times can be sobered once again. Their heart can be softened by Jesus' example and the consequences of our sin. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So death comes slowly when you're crucified. It takes hours. In Jesus' case, after his whipping, he was crucified at 9 a.m. And he hung on the cross for about six hours until he died at 3. If you'll indulge, I'd like to know what you're feeling right now. Just what's going through your mind? What's, what's in your heart? What's, what's speaking to you? Yes? All I can say is that I just have a heavy sensation. You feel heavy. Yeah, thank you. Um, I can't help but think about the thief on the cross next to him um, who rebuked the other thief or the other criminal for mocking um, Jesus. And he asked Jesus for forgiveness. And throughout all that, Jesus forgave him and said, You'll be with me in paradise. That even though you know Jesus was dying and all that, slowly he still recognize this guy's heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're referencing another uh, account of the same passage where Jesus forgave the other thief who repented uh, during their, their crucifixion. And it's very powerful that in the midst of all this, Jesus still was paying attention to what was going on to people around him. Yeah. Yeah, a loud cry. Yeah, it really shows the pain. Yeah. I feel kind of outraged that the people who are constantly mocking him and teasing him. I feel like I want to just kind of feel offended. Yeah, it's offensive, you know, what happened. Yes. Yeah, we don't know what we're doing when we're mocking him. Yeah. 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 You really appreciate the time to connect and reflect on what Jesus did. Yeah. I feel like he feels that same pain even when we sin today. Yes. It's still relevant. This, this, this wasn't just something that happened. It's something that he did for everyone. And so when we sin today, it's as if he's going through it again. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, there's a sense of, I can get through this. Look what he had to go through. I'm not suffering like that. Yes, yes. Pat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What would have happened if he just said, okay, I'm done with you. I quit. I'm not doing this for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is necessary because life has become so distracting. And this is the very reason why I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so that's like the anchor. And so with everything else going on, this, this has to bring me back for like my entire life. This yes. Yeah, looking at the cross, reminding ourselves of it, no matter how long you've been a Christian, it always brings you back to this is why I'm here. This is this means the most to me. One more. I think of the importance of remembering it every day. I think for years I lived my life like how you said, where I'm okay because I'm a little bit better. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and we every day, it doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian, we have to remember. Yes, we can't ever stand on our own acts. We can't ever say, hey, we're good enough. No, we always have to be reminded of the cross, what Jesus did for us. You know, when I, when I read it, it's, it's very serious to me. It has, it has serious consequences, and, and we can't avoid them. No one's going to escape from this consequence. And, and so we have to own it. There's a point where we have to own responsibility. We have to, we have to admit that this is ultimately because we sinned. That if no one else had sinned but me, this would still have needed to happen. It's that kind of extreme ownership. So I have another question. What does that kind of ownership look like? Think about that for a minute. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But what does owning the cross look like? So it looks like awareness, right? Like every day being aware of sin, its consequences, and what Jesus did on the cross. What else? Yeah. Well, kind of piggybacking off what you said, it, it helps us not judge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really easy to think everybody else is worse and I'm good. Yeah, but this puts everybody on the same same ground. Mike. Think about how, uh, like, every day I get in my dirty car. Yeah. And I don't polish it. But if I, you know, when you see somebody with a new car, I polish it. If the sin is on my mind all the time, mentally, it's, it's almost like by polishing the car and constantly thinking about it instead of ignoring it saying, oh, it's not like that. Yeah, being aware of it, it almost it drives you to do better. I can do better. Sean. I think about, you know, we have little sins all throughout the day, a little gossip, you know, maybe cussing, maybe lying, or a little lie, whatever. But we're standing there 
do the exact same thing they were doing with their hobby. Right. They may have been more outwardly about it, but we're doing it every single day. And like you said, you kind of let, oh, it's not a big deal, this isn't a big deal, but it adds up. Yeah, it looks like not not uh, you know not comparing ourselves, but we have to own our own sin and what we've done. There was someone here, Dana. Yeah. And if we've decided that Jesus is Lord, then I feel like we are obligated to do that. It puts our attention somewhere else. I'm reminded of, of the sermon last week, Glenn, where, where the story of uh, the Odyssey, where the one captain tied himself to the mast. He could hear the sirens, uh, but he was tied up, and therefore he didn't uh, direct his ship to go there and crash on the rocks, whereas the other captain didn't tie himself up. He just played a better song than the sirens. And there's something about this that's, it's a better song. When we, when we have this in our mind and we have this in our hearts, it actually does put us into a better road and it leads to better outcomes. Yeah. For me, it's just about having a relationship that where I say, what can I do to make this right? And so it's about a relationship that's full of just, well, you did this for me, so how can I live for you today? How yes. Can I please you? Yeah. Knowing that I'll never be perfect, but but then I, he sees my part, that I'm in a relationship and I'm trying. Yes, you're going to do your part. Tim, last one. Yeah, just for me, um, as a, the heaviness of, of the scripture about sin sinks in, and it's, it's good, it's good to be cut by that. I think of the only way um, to respond is to love God more, and I love the sin. And, yes. Uh, and, and just to really break. So yeah. So you know, God, thank you, and, and acknowledge, you know, where we're at. Yeah. We, also, too, to, sorry. to love, to, to, love the, uh, you know, to love the people in the world. I don't want to say love the world, but love, even though that there's futility, there's crazy thinking, and, and to not really point at them. Right. But I think, if how can we love God if we do not love our brother? Love right. Other and I think that's the spirit of Christ. Yeah, there's a, there's a thing. Love God more. And there is a breaking that has to happen because we love us. And we love our things so much, and we have to break that. We have to sever that in order to love God. And then that leads to loving others, right? Mission love, what we've been talking about. You know, Jesus actually talked about this very thing. What does it look like? I'm not even going to show you the scripture because you know it if you've read your Bible. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. I don't know if that hits you the way it hit me, but I suddenly realized when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, this is what he was referring to. We we willing to go to this length? Are we willing to endure that amount of suffering, that amount of trouble, that amount of hardship, that amount of pain, that amount of toil, that amount of rejection, whatever, whatever it is? Are we willing to carry that kind of a cross? That's what Jesus said it looks like to follow him. That's what he said it, it looks like to, to respond to this. I tell you, that's a, that's a challenge, and maybe we need to do a whole sermon series on that one, because that is a high call. That is a challenge for me, and I can only 
appeal to the grace of God to not give me more than I can bear at any one given point in time. But like Vicki said, I do want to make it better. I do want to give back whatever I'm capable of giving back. So it looks like loving and living like Jesus. That's what this looks like. That's what is the appropriate and proper response to what Jesus did for us on the cross, is for us to love and to live like he did. Verse 38, we're going to close out here. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up uh, with him from Jerusalem were also there. So Mark sort of ends the story of the crucifixion, and he, and he makes this comment that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And then he doesn't really say anything else. He doesn't elaborate. And then he just moves on and tells us that a centurion goes, hey, this surely was the Son of God. And then we find out that the women that were there overheard what the centurion said, and that's how we know what he said. That was the, that's kind of the end is, hey, we heard from the women that even a centurion was like, wow, this guy, he must have been the Son of God. So it made me think, what is this whole thing about the temple and the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom? Now, for those of you that have been in our study, you know we've seen little diagrams or images of what the temple looked like. But to give you a mental picture, it was basically like a rectangular building with a big courtyard around it. It was huge. And the rectangular building had two rooms inside. One was called the holy place and the other was called the most holy place. And it was believed that the presence of God resided in the most holy place. But because God is so perfect, as we've just learned, that no sinful person can coexist with God without being obliterated, they put a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. It was a big, heavy curtain. And that way, <clears throat> the priests could do their uh, priestly duties in the holy place, and the presence of God could reside nearby because God wanted a relationship with them, and they could, they could sort of be in the same house together. But this curtain separated them. And the curtain was famous. It was known to every Jewish child growing up. The tabernacle was the origin of it all. The, 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 when they left Egypt and they built a mobile sanctuary, and then they took that a model of the tabernacle, turned it into the temple. And for hundreds of years, for centuries, Jewish kids would grow up. They would go visit the temple. This was where you came to worship God. This is where the presence of God was. It was, it was everything to your, your, your faith. You, you, you were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year to, for different festivals and, and, and perform different uh, religious duties. I mean, everything centered around this. And it all centered around the holy place, the most holy place behind that curtain where the presence of God was. And it must have been an incredible thing to go in those days and visit the temple and be in awe of, of God and what, what, you know, what he had done with the Israelite people and all of this splendor. It must have been incredible. And, and for pious people, it must have been a very holy moment to be able to go and worship there and offer your sacrifices and know that God hears you and your sins can be forgiven and, and so on. Well, that, that curtain, Mark tells us, and so does Matthew and Luke, they tell us that it was torn from top to bottom. And now what's interesting is it says it was torn, not that it tore, and that it was torn in two from top to bottom, not that it just had a tear in it. 
What does that make you think of when you think of something being torn from top to bottom in two? You don't think of an accident. You don't think of a, a random snag. Yes, Jack? Well, God did it because he didn't need it anymore. Yeah, exactly right, right? The, the, so, so right away, what Mark is telling us is this curtain that separated God from the average person was torn, and it was torn by God from top to bottom. And even though Mark doesn't elaborate on it in his gospel, we know from our study of Mark that Jesus, for the last at least six months of his life, kept telling the Jewish people that God was going to bring an end to the temple system. And with it, the law of Moses, and with it, the entire Jewish faith. He was bringing it to an end. It had served its purpose. It was done. It was over. Unfortunately, the Jewish people had centuries to live out the will of God, and they failed repeatedly. We're not judging them because we fail repeatedly, but they failed repeatedly. And there came a point in time when Jesus came to this earth. He said to them, I'm done with this plan, this covenant, this will, it's over. And this image of the curtain being torn from top to bottom is as, as it's as if God took the contract and he tore it up. He shredded it. It's not coming back. We can't go put it back together. We're not going to tape it back together. And there are those in the Christian world that want to think that there's still some sort of special plan for the Jewish people that God has because they were the chosen people and God had his everlasting covenant. But the truth is, and Mark being a Jew is telling us that is false. It is over. He tore it up. The contract is done. But there's a new contract. And the new contract is based on faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have to go to a temple to worship. We don't have to only appear before God, you know, before God three times a year and follow some various uh, uh, sacrificial uh, um, ceremonial processes. We just have to have a faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith is for all of us. And it doesn't matter anymore, Jew or Gentile. There's no chosen people. I should say no chosen nation. There's no one nation that God's going to favor and show the rest of the world what it looks like. Now God's just going to favor anyone who puts their faith into Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what nation you come from, what your skin color is, you know, what your culture is. None of that matters. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can be part of a new covenant. And all of that is summed up in that simple phrase, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The last thing that I want to point out is what the centurion said sounds a lot like what Mark said at the beginning of his gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The Roman centurion at the end of Mark said, surely this was the Son of God. So we have a new contract. And with contracts come obligations. And the obligation of the new contract is to love and to live like Jesus. Let's not fail. 
Let's not make the same mistake. Let's not go back to old patterns and old sins and reap those old ugly consequences. Let's move on. Let's not be like that old woman who was out of touch with the consequences of her sin. But let's be sobered and let's be committed to loving and living like Jesus. We're going to close out in a prayer and you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so very much for bringing us together today. Thank you for your incredible love and the incredible example of Jesus on the cross and what an amazing story it's been. God, help us to be moved, sobered, and inspired by his life, his example, and what he did for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.